Our scripture reading is from Acts 3, 1 through 11, and this is found on page 911 in your pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible in your home, um, please feel free to take that one as a gift from us. We'd really love for you to have it. And again, it's Acts 3, 1 through 11. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. This is the word of the Lord. Can you imagine being there in that moment, what that must have been like? It was sort of just an ordinary day at the temple. And you've probably seen lots of people just like this lame man outside the temple many times before. And then all of a sudden this happens, right? The, I, I wonder if, if John, you know, it's Peter and John who are walking to the temple together. I wonder if John knew this was going to happen. Did he and Peter talk about that beforehand? Hey, by the way, John, uh, just so you know, I'm going to uh, heal someone on the way into the temple this morning, uh, this afternoon. So just heads up on that. Or, or did John just kind of walk along with Peter and he's kind of wondering what's going on in this moment? Um, I wonder if anyone knew that there was going to be anything going on different that, that day. You know, because Peter is just walking along. This guy asks him for, for money uh, and Peter reaches out his hand and this guy is, is healed, completely healed. And everyone's blown away. I mean, maybe you caught that language in the, in the passage as Kristen read of uh, amazement, wonder, awe, utterly astonished. And, and these people saw what happened. Uh, the people who were there, they, they could hardly believe their eyes. They could hardly make sense of this. Uh, and for this morning, not only do we have to wrestle with, you know, can we believe this account? Do we trust that this, something like this actually did happen? But we also have to then wrestle with, uh, what does this mean for us today? Are, are we supposed to do this? What, is, what does this mean for Christ's community? So not only trying to understand what happened then, what, is, what did it what all this mean then, but also for us today in Kansas City in the 21st century, what does this mean for Christ's community? Um, and so this morning, that's going to be what we're going to try to do. It's a big task this morning, so we'd probably uh, better, better pray uh, and ask for help as we embark on that journey together. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us your word, that you continue to speak through your word. And I pray now that um, for each of us gathered here, wherever uh, we're coming to this place from, whether places of joy and excitement, um, places of hardship and pain, our struggle, whatever's gone on during our week, I pray that in these moments as we hear from your word that you by your spirit would do what only he can do, which is to apply this uniquely 
to the, what's going on in our lives at this moment. Would you do that now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue our journey through the book of Acts, uh, which is the account of the work of Jesus in the life of the early church as Jesus is building his church, uh, we've seen some pretty incredible things happening. We, we watched in Acts chapter 1 as Jesus ascended into heaven, as he was taken up from his disciples. And then in Acts chapter 2, we saw the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God, the Spirit, descend on the disciples and empower them to proclaim the good news about Jesus, the the gospel, to proclaim that in languages that they didn't even know. And we pointed out one of the implications of that is right from the beginning, that the gospel is being translated into different languages in different cultures, that no one language or culture has priority of place within Christianity. And and then last week, we saw a little bit of a a snapshot of what life in this new family, this new family of the church is supposed to be like. What are some of the highlights of this family's life together? In all of this, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is continuing to act and build his church just as he promised. And here in Acts chapter 3, we get a further picture of what Jesus is doing and how he's doing it through his church. And so first we're going to look at the miracle. And then we're going to look at what that means for the mission of the church. So first we're going to look at the miracle and then how this informs the mission of the church. So first the the miracle and then the mission. And Acts 3 opens with an almost boring account of a day in the life of Peter and John until you get to verse 4. In fact, until you get to verse 4 in this passage, there's actually not much difference between what happens to Peter and John and probably what's happened to you many times. Maybe you're walking into the Sprint Center downtown or uh, you're driving uh, and getting off of 435 at, at State Line or Holmes and you come to the end of the, the exit ramp there and there's someone there, right, holding a sign asking for money. Maybe they are physically disabled in some way but, or, or maybe not, but there's someone there asking for for money, for help in some way. I mean, listen to how ordinary these first three verses of Acts chapter 3 are. They're so almost mundane. If, if you stopped at verse 3, you'd be like, why is this even in the Bible? Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a lame man from, a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. This is just, this is an ordinary day. If you were a Jewish person in the first century going to the temple, this is just a normal part of that trip. You would walk past uh, people who were in need, who were placed around the various entrances to the temple. And uh, this was a way that this community cared for those who were vulnerable in their midst. And they were placed there to ask for money. That was the, that's the giving of alms. That's what that means, the giving of money to the poor. And this was an important part of what it meant to be a Jewish person in the first century. It was a big responsibility to take part of what you had been entrusted with and to give it to those who were in need in this way. And so again, up until this point, in the first three verses of Acts chapter 3, this is nothing out of the ordinary. This is just a normal day going to the temple. But then you get to verse 4. 
And everything changes, right? This is the moment where, again, I have to wonder what John's thinking, if he and Peter had talked about this ahead of time or not. I mean, how many times had Peter and John made this walk into the temple? Because if you were here last week, maybe you remember at the end of Acts chapter 2, one of the ways that it described the life of this community together is that they were daily, day by day, they were going to the temple. So this is not an out-of-the-ordinary trip. Each day they made this trip to the temple. I mean, how many times perhaps that they had seen this very man on their way in. But there's something different about this moment, about this time. Peter and John are walking past the man and he asks them for money. Maybe he's asked them for money before. Maybe they've even given him money before. And then the text says Peter directs his gaze. He looks right at this man. He looks at him in the eyes. Yeah, I wonder how long or how often someone had ever looked this man in the eyes. Someone had really looked, at, really seen him. Because if, if you're like me and you are sitting at the exit ramp on the highway and that person's there, right, you're not making eye contact. You're kind of trying, but you're playing with the radio. You're looking at your phone. You don't want to make eye contact. Peter Gate, he looks at this person. And actually then he says, look at us. He invites the man to look at us. This guy probably isn't used, again, to people looking at him. He says, look at us. The man looks at them. He's expecting a gift. But the gift that he's about to receive is not at all what he's expecting. Because Peter says, I don't have any money for you. I wonder what the man's starting to think at this point. I don't have any money for you, but, but what I do have, I give to you. And I wonder if he's like, okay, I hope this is not, is he going to give me a pack of gum? What's, what's this guy have for me? And now even at this point in the story, it's maybe a little bit odd how Peter's responding. But it's just that. It's a little bit strange. It, it isn't until Peter finishes the next sentence that it becomes truly amazing. So listen to what Peter then says in verse 6. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Again, what is this lame, what is he thinking? Uh, Okay, I I, I was born this way. I've never walked in my life. We're going to learn later on in in Acts chapter 4 that this guy is 40 years old. Uh, is Is this some kind of a joke? Get up and walk? I mean, now that'd be nice, but it's not happening. You know, before he has time to say or do anything, Peter grabs him by the right hand and raises him up. And this is where the moment goes from ordinary to odd to unbelievable. Immediately, in that very instant, as Peter grabs this man by the right hand and lifts him up, his ankles are made well. They're made strong. He is completely healed, made well, perfect health, Luke describes it. And again, it's not as though this guy had been walking along last month, tripped, and and broke his ankle. This guy has never walked, ever in his life, in his entire 40 years of life, never once taken a step. And as Luke, the the human author of this account, describes the scene, he he captures it with the eye of someone who is a physician. We, We know from other parts of the New Testament that Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, that he was a physician, a doctor by trade. And Luke notes that this guy isn't just sort of taking wobbly baby steps. You know, because again, he's never walked before in his life, but he's walking, he's linking, leaping into the air. And this guy goes from, from never being able to walk to he, now he's able to dunk. 
You know, he's leaping into the air. He goes from having been crawling on the ground at best to now he can run the hurdles. And of course, the temple complex is this is a busy place. There's hundreds of people going in and out every day. And so a crowd begins to form around what's happening. Verse 9 tells us that all the people are, are, see this guy walking. They start praising God. They recognize him. The text tells us they recognize who this is. Again, many of these people came in and out of the temple daily. How many times had they seen this man? How many times had they passed him? He's 40 years old. I mean, he'd been there perhaps for years, maybe even decades. They know this guy. They recognize him. And they're filled with wonder and amazement. They're stunned. They can hardly believe their eyes that the person that they know has been lame from birth is now leaping, walking. As we pointed out, it's not as if people in the first century were somehow more gullible about physical matters like disease and death. If anything, they were more intimately acquainted with disease and death than we are. They weren't any more likely than you or I to believe that someone who hadn't walked for 40 years would just one day all of a sudden stand up and start leaping and walking. I mean, they can't believe it, and yet they see it. They see it. They just saw it happen. And so you have here Peter and John, and the the text tells us the man's standing, clinging on to them in this porch outside the temple called Solomon's Portico. They're, They're standing there, and a crowd is forming around them. And what happens next? What are they going to say? And Peter looks around and the, the crowd is gathering. And so he begins, he gives them a sermon right there. Right there in the midst of it. And begins to unpack what this miracle means. That God restored this person. That just like he raised Jesus from the dead, he's also raised this man up from the ground. So why did Luke include this account here? What does this story mean? I thought a lot about that this week. You know, Luke, he's putting together this account of the work of Jesus and the life of the early church, and he's got to make choices about what to include. Why does he choose to include this account of this person being healed right here? At least one central picture that emerges from this chapter is a picture of what the church's mission is. What is it that only the church can offer? What can only the church offer and why? Is the church just another NGO, another 501c3 organization, just another community organization or club? Those are all really valuable things, they're important, but is the church just another one of that set of kind of organizations in the world? Or is it something different? Is it something more, something unique? And if it is, what happens if it loses its core identity, loses its mission? Because if it, if it does lose its core identity, that mission, it certainly can become just another 501c3. But what this passage is showing us is that the church is so much more than that. And this miracle is a fantastic picture of the church's unique mission in the world. And what can only the church offer? 
That's what we see as we look more closely at Peter's message, the sermon that he gives after this miracle to the crowd that's formed. But before we look at that, before we look at the, the, the mission that the, the church that this shows us, we need to address two potential pitfalls that we could have in looking at a text like this. And the first one is the pitfall of thinking that this could never happen. That this couldn't have happened then and it certainly couldn't happen now. And this is our default assumption as people living in a secular age. Even if you're a Christian, even if you've grown up in the church, even if you would say, I believe in God and I believe that he has the power to, to heal, we all inhabit a culture that assumes a closed universe. That is a, a, a world, a reality in which there's nothing beyond the material realm, no, no supernatural, no one or no thing to, to intervene from the outside. But we're actually in the vast minority of people as a culture to hold that view. Both when you look at people around the world today, most people don't hold that view. And certainly throughout history, most people have not held that view that the world is a closed place, that there's no, nothing beyond the physical material realm. And indeed, if we start where the Bible starts with in the beginning God, that if we believe that there is a God who exists, who created all things by speaking, then, he, then he's certainly capable of intervening in dramatic ways in his creation. And if you want to go deeper into that conversation on the possibility of miracles and how God might do that and his existence in that kind of conversation, I'd encourage you to pick up uh, C.S. Lewis's book called Miracles. I'll warn you, it's not the easiest of reads. But if this has been on your, if you're on a journey to, to want to understand uh, better the claims of Jesus and this, the possibility or the accounts of miracles in the scriptures has been a barrier to you and in, in, embracing Jesus, I'd encourage you to pick up that book, or if it's even in your own faith journey, if this has been a place that causes you doubt or struggle. Um, again, that's a great, great book. Not the easiest of reads, but if you want to go deep on some of those questions, it's a fantastic resource. So that's one trap that we can fall into thinking, this couldn't have happened, this doesn't happen, this won't happen. But the other side of that that we can just as easily fall into is the, the misreading, the mistreating of the text and thinking that this should be the norm. This sort of dramatic healing should happen all the time for everyone. But this is where you have to keep in mind the whole story and the whole context of Scripture. We know that even Jesus in his life and ministry didn't heal everyone. He didn't heal everyone he encountered. We have stories of him spending time in the village healing. There's more people waiting and he moves on to the next, the next place. There's other accounts in the Scripture where we see not everyone is healed in this miraculous way. In fact, if this was normal, it wouldn't be a miracle, right? Even the language of miracle points to the exceptional, extraordinary, out of the ordinariness of these moments. And so as we look at what the church's mission is, we need to hold those two realities in tension. On the one hand, that God can and does sometimes miraculously heal. But on the other hand, oftentimes he uses very ordinary means to bring about healing or doesn't heal at all. We have to hold those two in tension as we look at these kinds of accounts. Okay, so now to the question that we raised just a moment ago, which is what can only the church offer? What is the church's unique contribution? What can it only do? Well, the very first thing that we see as we look at Peter's sermon, his explanation for what happened in the second half of the chapter, is that there is a greater miracle than physical healing. 
there is a greater miracle than physical healing, that there is something even greater that the church proclaims. It's the miracle of new life. Because look at what Peter says in verse 13. Because he's, he's in the process of explaining to all the people gathering around, look, we didn't do this. This is not power that I have. This is not something that we did on our own. God did this for this man, not us. God did this through us in Jesus' name. And then he says in verse 13, he kind of goes right at them in the sermon. This is kind of what he did in Acts chapter 2 as well. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. If you were a Jewish person in the first century, that's how you talk about, that's the God of the Bible. So you identify which guy you're talking about. Glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So just Peter's reminding them, remember all of you, Pilate was going to let Jesus go and you said, no, we, we'd rather have a murderer than Jesus. But you denied him the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And then you killed the author of life. Yeah, that's a pretty steep charge. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, Peter says. And then he picks up in verse 19, and he says, Repent, therefore, and turn, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What does the church have to offer? What does it offer that no other institution, organization, or government in the world can offer? The forgiveness of sins. There are lots of organizations in the world who can give alms. There are lots who can give monetary resources to those who are in need. And the church does that also. But only the church can proclaim the ultimate miracle of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's what this man's healing is a picture of. I mean, Peter says, look, I'm not just going to give you a few bucks. I'm going to, to give you new life. You know, only the church has been entrusted with the message of the miracle of the forgiveness of sins. You see, there's almost an irony in this passage as we read it today in the 21st century. Especially if you've grown up in church, you probably don't even bat an eye when you read, oh yeah, the forgiveness of sins, yeah, that's what God does. What I wrestle with is, could he actually heal someone? And Peter's point is almost just the opposite. It's almost like the real miracle here is that you, God can forgive you for murdering the author of life. And oh, by the way, he can also heal people's physical bodies as well. And maybe you came here this morning just looking for something to get you by. Uh, for just a little help. And just a little advice, some inspiration. Yeah, I don't know your story. I don't know where you've been this week, what life has been like. Maybe it's been a really difficult season at work. Right, maybe there's a really key relationship in your life that is just, it's just falling apart. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you are in physical pain. You are sick. You're in need of healing. 
whatever that may be for you this morning, I want you to know that Jesus knows that. And he cares deeply for you in the midst of that. He wants to see you made whole. And yet what Peter makes clear in this message is that the ultimate problem, the problem underneath every one of those other problems in our lives is that we as human beings have rebelled against God and brought about in some way the, the death of the author of life. That that's our major problem. That's our ultimate problem. What we ultimately need is not a few bucks or the inspirational equivalent of a few bucks. What we need is forgiveness. What we need is repentance, seasons of refreshing. You see, lots of organizations can give you a couple of bucks. There's lots of places that can give you a life hack on how to better organize your schedule or to be more productive. Only the church can offer life. New life, life in Jesus' name. Have you experienced that life? Have you received those seasons of refreshing? And repentance is kind of a, it's, you know, you used it here in the text, and I've said it here a couple of times. That's a very churchy kind of biblical word. What, is, what do we mean by repentance? Well, it simply means to admit that you're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> to, to listen to sort of the, the, the GPS of your conscience, of God speaking to you saying, you need to make a U-turn. You need to make a U-turn. To admit that you're going in the wrong direction. and To turn to God and ask for his forgiveness. To ask for his restoration, his grace. And God is faithful to his promise that if you turn to him, he will give you all of those things. Yeah, yeah, but these seasons of repentance, refreshment, this forgiveness of sins this, that Peter speaks of here, it's not just about the restoration of individuals. Because Peter doesn't stop there. He actually goes so much further than that. This is ultimately says about the restoration of all things in Jesus' name. Because look at where Peter goes in the sermon in verse 19. I, I read this earlier, but let me just pick up the context again. Verse 19, repent, Peter says, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoring of all the things of all the things about which the prophets long ago spoke. All the things. I mean, what organization promises anything close to that? Often on my commute home, I'll, I'll turn on uh, national public radio. And often because of that, I hear the mission statement of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. It's a great organization. They support public radio. And, and what's, the, what's their, you, if you've heard it, to build a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. I mean, that's a big mission, right? Think about a foundation organization, build a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. A pretty big goal. And they do great work. But the church is to point to the restoration of all things. 
Not, not some things, not most things, not that things will get a little better, but that all things would be completely restored to perfect health, just as this man's legs were restored to perfect, complete health. Peter says, what happened to this man? This is a sign. The healing of this man is a sign of the restoration of all things that is coming. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I love how he frames this and how miracles so often work. It says, the miracles are, in fact, a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. In other words, some miracles do locally what God has already done universally, and others do locally what he has yet to done but will do. That's what happens here in this moment, that God is doing locally with this man's ankles and legs what he is going to do one day for the entire universe. This miracle is just a little foretaste, a signpost of what one day will happen for the whole created realm. And there's a reason that this miracle happens this way. I mean, Peter could have done any number of miracles to prove the power of Jesus, or he could have just given this man money. There there's, would have been nothing wrong with him just giving him money then when he asked. Financial generosity is an important part of what we do as Christians. But again, it's not all that the church does. The church doesn't simply give alms. If all we do as an organization is just give money to those who are in need, we are not the church. If all we're doing is giving silver and gold, we are not the church. We are here to point in word and in deed to the promise of Jesus that he is going to restore all things. And sometimes that happens miraculously. I believe that, that God sometimes, even today, intervenes in miraculous ways in healing and to be a signpost of that. You know, but more often than not, the pointing to the restoration of all things happens in our everyday lives, in our everyday work. If you're a Christian, if you're part of the local church, your work on Monday, your Monday, whatever that is, whether, it's, whether you're retired, whether you go to the office, whether you're in school, whether you're a kid, your job description on Monday is to point to the restoration of all things in and through what you do each and every day. That's the mission of the church. And ultimately, of course, it's Jesus who is the one who will bring about the restoration of all things. This is not a triumphalistic idea that we somehow on our own are going to usher in new creation on our own. But every time we help someone move from dependence to contribution, that's what happens to this man. He's restored from being in a place of, of being dependent on others to be able to con contribute in that place. Every time we move someone from dependence to contribution, every time we give our time and energy to another, every time we die to ourselves and serve others in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, we push back a little bit of the darkness. And we bear witness to, we point to a day when the darkness will finally and permanently be gone forever. 
Now, I imagine you might be feeling the way that I felt when I got to this point in writing this sermon, which was, I believe everything that I've just written here, but I kind of feel completely overwhelmed by it. Because how can we do this? Uh, we, we aren't strong enough. Our little church in, in Brookside, uh, we don't have the resources. The task is too big. And you're right. You're right. It is. But here's the beauty. See, only the church operates from the paradox of weakness in Jesus' name. This is our unusual power. It is a power that comes in weakness and in dependence on another. Uh, Peter, on his own, he doesn't have anything to give to this guy. But that's where faith comes in. Faith in Jesus' name. Faith in Jesus' power and presence. Look at verse 16. I've intentionally not read verse 16 for you this whole time because I want, it's the linchpin. It's the turning point. It's the, the key to this whole passage. Look at verse 16. So this is right after Peter says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. We're witnesses to this. And then verse 16. And in his name, in the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Faith is knowing our weakness and putting our hope in the strength and the power of another. Abandoning that I can do this on my own. Uh, and that's what Peter does to this man. He, he doesn't have anything to offer him, but he believes that Jesus has everything to offer him. Not just physical healing, but the forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting. And the Apostle Paul, who's another one of the early church leaders who we're going to get to know a lot better as we go through the course of the book of Acts here, wrote in his second letter to the Corinthian church that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. You see, Paul himself had some kind of physical ailment. We don't know exactly what it was. And, and he actually prayed three different times that God would take it away, that God would heal. And in Paul's case, he didn't get the answer of healing. God didn't answer with healing, physical healing for Paul. He answered with grace to endure in the weakness. Listen to these words of Paul. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, this weakness, this ailment. But he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, sometimes the miracle that God will perform in your life isn't physical healing, isn't the removal of weakness, isn't the removal of, of a difficult circumstance. Sometimes the miracle, sometimes the answer to prayer will be grace to allow you to endure in the weakness so that God's power 
is known to the world. This is the paradoxical way in which the power of, of God works in God's economy. It was the death of the author of life that makes possible the life of all who are dead. Jesus, who had all power, became weak so that we might become strong and that we and all things might be restored to perfect health one day. Someone had to become weak in order for this man to become strong. And that someone was Jesus. He became weak so that you could be healed, so your sins could all be forgiven, and that one day all things could be restored. His power is made perfect in your weakness. And he wants to display his glory through you to point to the restoration of all things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you make us more faithful to you as the local church of in word and deed and all that we do announcing the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of all things. Would we be creative? Would we be winsome in that mission that you've uniquely called us to as your body, as your church? Pray this in Jesus' name.